How's it going, guys? Welcome back to the Extra Fast Podcast. Still with terrible audio, we're working on it. But again, we had to get some content out because the playoffs have been absolutely crazy lately. We're going to run through the eight different playoff matchups like we did in the last episode. Kind of just get everyone back up to speed and give you some of our takeaways. So starting in the East, we have a likely sweep happening tonight with Philly and Washington. Like we said last episode, this really is probably the least interesting series left. And I'm kind of disappointed the Wizards couldn't pull out a game, but Philly's looking really dominant right now. I feel like they're really coming into form, and I'd be shocked if they didn't finish it, finish the sweep tonight at 7. But, yeah, anything to add for this series? Yeah, I, uh, I agree. I don't really think I have much to add. You know, sucks that Russ got hurt, and uh, I think... Uh, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, the fans and how horrible they have been. You know, it started with uh, the guy pouring, you know, popcorn on Westbrook's head. You know, classic Philadelphia sports fans. Um, but, yeah. Classless. <laughs> Truly, yeah. But, um, again, all around the league, seen a lot of disrespectful shit that, you know, just want to cover early here that is just wild, you know, these fans just these are people they're not they don't exist solely for your entertainment and it's really it's it's quite sad what these people are doing but um, yeah, yeah 100% unfortunately agree. that's kind of a headline of this Sixers Wizards series you know Brad Beal has been off uh as I said Russell Westbrookman hurt and then I mean they're just completely outmatched by as you said a Philly team that's looking really dominant, but um, yeah, we'll see in the upcoming rounds how they continue to be. But they definitely look good, definitely a, a championship contender. Yeah, they do look good, but you're right with Russ hurt and Beal underperforming. It's a dominant performance against a really underperforming team. So I'm not sure how much of a this is more of like a warm up round for them, and it should get more interesting in the next round, but. To go on to what you said about fans being disrespectful, we had some continued disrespect from some fans at TD Garden, unfortunately. Actually, one fan who's a student at URI, mm-hmm. or not. I, I heard, uh, saw um, that. Yeah, yeah. I will drop his name because I don't feel like that's necessary. But um, So basically, Celtics Nets 2-7 matchup. We got to witness an outstanding performance from Tatum in Game 3. His 50 ball that culminated in the Celtics win. Um it's really crazy to me that they even won a game in this series. I'm just going to say that because they had four NBA players, one injured Kemba Walker, and then like six dudes that should be working at radio. <laughs> so I'm super impressed by their ability to plot a win against this team, especially given that Harden and KD both played outstanding. They combined for like, I don't know, I think like 90 or uh, 80, but mm-hmm. Tatum was the best player on the floor in that game. And I think if you can take anything away from the series, for us, from a Celtics fan's perspective, it's that, you know, Tatum's the man. He can be the best player on the floor with a bunch of future Hall of Famers. And they really need to kick it into gear this offseason. I mean, you, you have clearly a generational talent who's ready to contend at the highest level and push your team to playoff heights. And they need to surround him with players that will help him do that. So I expect moves to be made. I think Kemba, given how the season's progressed and how the playoffs were really, you know, it's really sad because they rested him all season. No back-to-backs, load management 100%, 
all in the hopes that he'd be ready for the playoffs and the playoffs roll around and he throws up four stinkers and misses the fourth game. You know, it's it's really sad and I feel like it's kind of the uh, it, it, this might be like the crown jewel for the Kemba Walker experience in Boston, assuming he's dealt this offseason. If this, this is how it ends, it's really unfortunate that he was never able to operate at full health, but I truly think that in the best interest of the franchise, they really need to move off his contract and try to make some significant improvements to the roster. So hopefully those come in the next few days. But with regards to the Nets Celtics, I mean, the Nets look great. Honestly, they do. But at the same time, they did let a Celtics team with, I mean, again, like four NBA players drop 130 on them in back-to-back games. Also, Tatum is the first player in Celtics franchise history to drop 40 in back-to-back playoff games, which is cool, but unfortunately doesn't mean too much in this series. Mm -hmm. I don't know, though. I think that the Nets are really showing a lot of their vulnerabilities, especially around the rim. I mean, if Jalen Brown was healthy, he'd be getting to the rim at will with these games. Like, there's going to be a lot of teams, namely the Bucks in the next round, that are going to give Brooklyn headaches at the rim. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, I was actually just about to say, you know, the Nets' defense has still looked like a, a major issue. Um, and we thought they had fixed that a little bit over, you know, the second half of the season, but not really. Again, when, as, as you said, a Celtics team with, like, four NBA players is absolutely cooking you, it just mm-hmm. doesn't look good. No. They definitely have some issues to resolve, but it's going to be really hard for them to, as a... Uh, Again, they prepare for a team that can put all the pressure they want on the rim via Giannis. So mm-hmm. I'm excited for that matchup. I think it has the possibility to be a sneaky upset for the Bucks. I, th- I know we've talked about this a little bit, mm-hmm. but, but I'm, I'm very interested to see how that matchup ends up falling. Yeah, and I think, you know, to go back into the Bucks, you know, they were the first team to win their series in a, a pretty surprising 4-0 sweep of the Miami Heat, which... I don't think anyone really predicted before the playoffs. You know, I think at least, you know, looking at what Miami was able to do to Milwaukee last year in the bubble, everyone thought that this would be at least a competitive series. You know, Miami has been good recently, but no. You know, the adjustments that Mike Budenholzer made, as well as mostly just the the roster improvements that Milwaukee made, over last offseason just made such a massive difference in this series. As soon as Chris Middleton hit that shot in game one, you know, you could almost feel, excuse me, the Bucks getting the monkey off their back, you know, so to say. And from there on, just completely steamrolled the Miami Heat. The, the Bucks defense just looked absolutely unbelievable, you know, moving on a string, actually switching uh, for once. And, again, when we talked all that trash about Brooke Lopez last year, in this series, he was utterly dominant. Again, outplaying Bam, you know, who would have expected that? You know, Bam was electric in that series against, uh, you know, Milwaukee last year, especially on the defensive end. And even this, you know, in this series, Giannis wasn't dominant. You know, he had some great games, but for the most part, they didn't need him on offense to be dominant to win these games. They used him to guard Jimmy, and that was extremely effective, but, you know, 
that makes it terrifying about the Miami Heat, or sorry, the Milwaukee Bucks. They're able to sweep a, again, a team that I thought was really good without explosive, explosive Giannis games, which as you were, you know, talking about earlier with the likely Nets Bucks series, you know, a potential upset. I, I really don't think it, it's, it'll be much of an upset if Milwaukee win that series. In fact, I, you know, at the moment, you know, I think I'll pick Milwaukee in that series just because the yeah. matchups are, you know, so perfect for Milwaukee to take advantage of the Bucks' weaknesses and do mm-hmm. as good a job of any team to slow down the Brooklyn Nets. You know, with all the talent the Nets have, it's going to be impossible to stop them from, you know, scoring 110, 115 points a game. But mm-hmm. the best way, I think, that you can really slow them down is just by punishing them uh, on defense over and over and preventing them from, you know, getting any transition looks just by continuously pounding the paint, making their guys work on defense, especially KD. If you can get KD to just work on Giannis or, or, you know, make him guard Giannis and, you know, just bully him in the paint. Expend so much energy Ex- on the defensive end of the court. Exactly. Of course, you still have to worry about James Harden and his creation for the other team. But if you can, you know, tire out KD and then uh, either, you know, send doubles at Harden or figure out a way to prevent him from making plays and turn him into just a score and stick Drew Holiday on him or something of that nature. You know, I think that's as good of a game plan as any team is going to be able to do against Brooklyn. Yeah, I totally agree. Some unsung heroes, I think, for the Bucks in this past series. You mentioned Brooke Lopez, but I really thought that Bryn Forbes played outstanding. Oh, yeah, I mean, how to Jimmy. DiVincenzo vacuum. I mean, when honestly, when DiVincenzo got hurt, I was kind of worried because, one, he's another defender you can throw at Harden and Kyrie. And two, I mean, he's one of their better shooters this mm. year. And I feel like in a series with the Nets where every game is going to be in the 130s, you know what I mean? Like, you're going to need as much firepower as possible. So the fact that Brandon Forbes is able to step up and just become an absolute sharpshooter in a playoff series, if he can keep that shooting up and fill that hole, you're right. They have guys that they can throw at pretty much everyone on the Nets roster, but the Nets have no one that can guard Giannis and nobody that can really be physical enough to contain Brooke Lopez. I mean, he just manhandled Bam for a four-game series. Just imagine what he's going to do to, like, to, I mean, fucking Blake Griffin. Like, <laughs> Nick Claxton is going to be on the floor trying to guard Giannis sometimes. But DeAndre Jordan didn't even see the – he didn't even see the floor against the Celtics. He hasn't even, like, touched the court. So, no. I mean, they're really they're really shorthanded in the front court. And this is not your normal front court that you're going to see in Milwaukee. It's, like, probably the most dominant we've seen in the past three years between Giannis – and Brooke, and I mean, well, and Bobby Portis, tired, and I think, yeah, even you know, Drew Holiday stylistically is a very physical player. Um, and mm-hmm. so is Chris Middleton, you know, they're just so big and strong. And the strength to me is what the Nets lack more so than anything else. You know, they have length in Claxton, and he is even a little bit of a switchable defender. You know, they have so many different versatile wing defenders. Jeff Green, again, a guy who does have that strength, is probably going to miss a good part, if not the entirety of that series. You know, mm-hmm. so I think his loss is a bigger deal 
to Brooklyn, then the um, Dante DiVincenzo loss uh, is to the 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 Bucks. Definitely. Um, yeah, it could. It's be. another another matchup I look at, uh, which goes Milwaukee's favor. Yeah, I'm very excited to see the series, and I think you're totally right. The matchup honestly does favor Milwaukee, but at the end of the day, the Nets are going to be favored for a reason. It'll be the Bucks' responsibility to keep up with them offensively. I mean, they're going to do their best on defense, but you know the Nets are still going to score. Yeah, obviously. You know, score on pretty much every possession. So it's uh, it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds. But I feel like it's going to, you know, it's guaranteed to go at least seven. Unless something crazy happens, like yeah. a massive injury. I'll, I'll never guarantee something to go seven, but I agree. This has to be a good series. It, yeah, exactly. It'd be a shock if it wasn't. But at the same mm-hmm. time, to go into the next series in the East, the Knicks-Hawks, I really thought this was going to be a closer series. I mean, it's not over yet. 3-1 leads aren't impenetrable. But the Hawks look like they're running away with it. And I have to say, Julius Randle, we talked about him in the last episode, whether or not he was a playoff choker. And, again, pretty limited playoff experience. This is the first series where he's really had a major role on a playoff team. And I said last episode, well, let's just see how he does in games three and four. And in game three, he was terrible. And in game four, he was marginally better, but still really inefficient, clearly not getting his shot off the way he wanted to. And with that, I mean, they lost by 20. It's that simple. So Mm -hmm. the Hawks... I'm not sure what kind of threat they pose going forward, but I do know that this is really good news for the Trey Young agenda. The fact that he might win a playoff series before Luka, <laughs> that's just going to, that's really validating for the Hawks as a franchise, but also just this team. I mean, again, we pegged them as a playoff team coming into the season. We were kind of disappointed when they were, you know, struggling early on, but they've turned it around and have started playing well, and it's not too surprising. So. It's good to see them get out of the first round, I guess. But yeah, I mean, the Knicks kind of sold. I hate to say it. Yeah, I, I kind of I agree with the Knicks, but I I really do think the Hawks are the bigger story of this series. While Julius Randle was not very good, a lot of that has to do with how well I think Atlanta defended him. They totally shut off his ability to go left, and I think the biggest flaw in Julius Randle's game is just that he has no right hand at all he needs to get to that left and he's not you know a zion level of dominance to where it doesn't really matter and he was forced into just taking so many tough jump shots which he's hit this year but those are just not shots that you want to live with in the playoffs especially if they're not falling and it just showed you know that this team is way too over-reliant on you know one guy and um yeah i think you know trey young on the other end just completely picked them apart you know the the pick and roll yep. game with Clint Capella and the bevy of shooters that the Atlanta Hawks had it was just too much for the Knicks to handle um you know the the only you know game that the Knicks lost sorry the Hawks lost too again they could lose game five and this could go back to Atlanta or yeah back to Atlanta for or sorry who's the home team it's the Knicks. okay so it's the Knicks it's oh yeah, yeah so again we're going back to New York and of course, the Knicks could pull that one out and they'll go back to Atlanta, but I don't think this is more than a six-game series, right? But, um, yeah, I just think you know, the the only game they lost is because uh, McMillan, Nate McMillan, sat Trey Young too long, and the game got out of hand. You know, this could have easily been a yeah. sweep. Um, and 
again, a lot of that has to do with just how great Trey Young was. You know, controlling the pace of the game so early in his playoff career. You know, getting everyone involved. As I said, the, the pick-and-roll game with him and Capella was just so easy. So many easy buckets for Capella or, you know, open shots for Boyan Bogdanovich or Bogdan, sorry. Bogdanovich again, who was I thought was great this series, even with a couple bad shooting oh, yeah. games. I thought his playmaking was so helpful to their offense. Um, but yeah, just th- that team is really, really, really good. There are so many young players I like on that team. I love the roster construction. I think Clint Capella is super underrated. He's so good on defense and on the glass. And I I don't necessarily like their matchup against Philly. I think Ben Simmons is about to have Trey uh, looking bad, but I don't think that's going to be his fault, right? Um, yeah. It's just the size of this disadvantage will be very rough for him to overcome. He's a fantastic player, so he's not going to get completely shut down. So I don't. That's going to be a super tough series for them, and we'll learn a lot about them next series. But you know. What they've showed me is that this is a team that's going to be, you know, either winning a playoff series or competing in a playoff series or, you know, getting to, you know, the ECF or even further for the next years. You know, this Hawks team's legit, and I can't wait to see what they do in the future. And quickly, I think a Trey Young for MVP next year, I think that's that's a possibility. I would not... I think that he's a deep, a deep sleeper for MVP next year, depending on what happens. Could be a great value pick. Yeah, I don't think he'll. It is crazy to me, looking back, that he didn't even make the All Star game this year. That's really mind-boggling. Unreal. I mean, there were clearly, clearly a lot of snubs in both conferences. Um, A lot of guys that were definitely deserving and didn't make the cut. But watching him perform so well in the playoffs against a team that was pretty dominant in the regular season in the Knicks. I think this does ultimately reveal that the Knicks were, you know, overperforming all season. They oh, were yeah, for a regular sure. season team, lacked a ton of experience, benefited from no fans, I'm guessing, and the lights came on in the playoffs, and they weren't all that, which is fine. Like, the Knicks were ahead of schedule this year. The fact that they were mm-hmm. this good, going into the season, nobody had these expectations for them. The Hawks, on the other hand, kind of did have these expectations. So in the end, the outcome of the series isn't too unexpected, and it kind of fits both teams' timelines in terms of where they should be and where they're going to be next year. But I think the next series against Philly, that will be really telling for the Hawks. Are they better than they think we are? And can they win a few games against a pretty pretty dominant at the moment Philadelphia team? Or are they also kind of overperforming and benefiting from this matchup? That will be a fun series to watch, the way the Hawks are playing right now. But to kick gears and switch over to the Western Conference, tonight... We have Game 4 of the Jazz-Grizzlies, which I've been riding the Grizzlies for a while now. I think tonight's the night that even the series is going 7. Grizzlies in 7. I've been saying it since the beginning. But in all seriousness, I was really surprised by how well Donovan Mitchell played in Game 2. Oh, he's been fantastic. I really thought that... Oh, yeah, he's been incredible. But he came back and looked like he had missed a beat. And I guess, you know, in hindsight, I could have seen this coming because... He seems like he was ready, and he was pissed mm-hmm. the coaches didn't play him in game one. That would kind of lend you to believe that he's been healthy for a while and was going to hit the ground running. But still, I mean, 
he looks like he hadn't missed a game, but he's been out for about a month, so. Yeah, it's a to while. To have him come back and play so well. I mean, the, the Jazz, they kind of look like the team that they looked like in the regular season at this point. Um, and I don't know, I'm still not sold. But in terms of this series, yeah, they, they probably should be able to take care of business tonight. I think they're favored by like seven points. Yeah, I agree. If what they... do you think their, their destiny is in the next round? So I really think it depends on the matchup. I think the Clippers are just an atrocious matchup for the Jazz. Uh, you know, the one thing that they all their their problem is for me is their wing defense. It, again, they get away with having you know some not great wing defenders because when you have a you know a rim defender like Rudy Gobert, you can just press up on guys and people are not going to want to drive into the paint, but. Mm-hmm. Kawhi isn't necessarily driving. Kawhi and PG are not necessarily driving to get to the layup. They're driving to get to their mid-range jump shot spots, which you know, as great at defending the rim, Rudy Gobert is. He's not defending mid-range jump shots, and that's where the Clippers mm-hmm. really live. And you know, they're just absolutely elite shooting. Will come out, and I think their ball movement that they showed in the regular season was really lacking. In games one and two against Dallas, uh, even with them putting up all those points, but in the last couple of games, their ball movement has looked great to me, and that will you know really hurt the Jazz. But I think the series against the Mavericks is even more interesting. Again, who knows who wins that series? It's two-two. Looks like the Clippers are favored right now, but never they always disappoint. So. But yeah, it's crazy I think... how quickly that flipped. That, uh, that script flipped. Oh yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that soon. We'll get into that in a bit. But yeah, with Utah, I, I have not been thrilled with their performance so far in the playoffs for sure. I, I thought they, I thought the Grizzlies were good, but these games have been far too close than what they should be. You know, and Utah is still just so reliant on the three ball, right? They're they're either shooting the three or a Rudy Gobert pick-and-roll dunk or a floater because of, you know, off the pick-and-roll, right? So I'm worried about their offense and just another team that can run them running into a great shooting team. Again, like the Clippers, that can, you know, that doesn't need to get into the paint, you know, to score like that and can help not play Rudy Gobert off the floor. I think that's, you know, overstated because of just terrible matchups, but a team that limits his effectiveness. Any team that can do that uh, is a real threat to the Jazz, in my opinion. Totally agree. So, now for the the 2-7 matchup, which is going to get steamy. The Suns-Lakers. Now, well, oh well. (laughs) There's a lot to get into here, but there's a few things that I think we're really important to the series a few games ago. Chris Paul being healthy was one of them. When he was clearly not 100%, you know, his mid-range jumper wasn't even in the front rim, you knew he wasn't healthy. But in game four, he looked like he was kind of regaining form. He played great, dropped like 18 points, 9 assists, they won, and at the same time, Anthony Davis goes down with a groin strain. So he's doubtful, for game five, but there's some speculation. He, he, I mean, he's game to game at the moment. Mm-hmm. If he's not able to return this series, 
which it is possible, right? Because, well, on, on the one hand, if the Suns win game five with no Anthony Davis, which is entirely possible now that Chris Paul is healthy and they're coming on all cylinders. I mean, this whole series, Devin Booker's been great aside from one game. DeAndre Ayton's been exceptional. And it was Chris Paul that was the, the weakest link in the big three. What I will say is He's Devin Booker now. hasn't been good in game three or four. Okay, that's true. That's true. But up until that point, he was playing outstanding. Yeah. And, I mean, again, with a healthy Chris Paul, you can only expect him to keep playing better. But if that's the case and the Suns win game five against the Lakers, you're, you know, like, you're the, you're the Lakers coaching staff and you're faced with this decision. Do we rush Anthony Davis back for a game six, not fully healthy, with a soft tissue injury that could really easily be re-aggravated and become much worse? Or do you roll the dice and move on to game six? Again, this is hypothetical, assuming they lose game five, which I think is a really is a real possibility. I'm excited to see what the odds look like on game day, but I don't know. What are your thoughts? Because there's a lot up in the air right now with the Anthony Davis injury. I think you at that point, it de- I think it depends on how game six goes, right? If it's a blowout, you have to play AD. His impact, even you know when he's not super healthy, on the defensive end is just too massive for him to keep out if he's not if you know he as long as he can play right he's gonna mm-hmm. play now i i do think there are some ways you know in game five for the lakers to make up for the lack of anthony davis and the key to that is you know two things the proper lineups and playing Marcus All and LeBron's aggressiveness. I think in that fourth quarter, the Lakers really showed something that gives me a lot of hope for game five. Um, the lineups What's that? that they will have with Marcus All at the five and LeBron James at the four will destroy the Suns. There is a lineup that the Lakers have to play a lot. If they play this lineup a lot, they'll do great. They have to play the three guard, the Dennis, AC, KCP, LeBron, Gasol lineup. That lineup has, mm-hmm. this season, has, I believe, a 10, a plus 10 net rating, which is elite, and it works so well against the Suns, right? You've got the three great defensive guards to work on CP and Devin Booker. You know, I think a lot of people... You know, KCP did not play in Game 4, right? Which Mm -hmm. obviously was overshadowed by the Anthony Davis injury, but if KCP can get rolling, his defense on Devin Booker this series has been really good, and a lot of Devin Booker's buckets in Game 4 came against Wes Matthews, who just has not defended him very well this series, uh, for as Mm -hmm. well as he's done on Chris Paul. But KCP has done a very good job on Devin Booker. So him coming back and... Uh, will you know help them on the defensive end without AD? And again, this was still a team who was number one in the NBA in defensive rating without Anthony Davis. And again, Marcus Saul is another big part of it. He had not been very good on defense in Game Two. He was better in Game Three, but in Game Four, he was fantastic on defense in that last shift. I think he had you know two or three blocks in that shift alone. He wasn't getting blown by by anybody other than campaign who continues to give the Lakers hell. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, really. <laughs> but you no, know, and on offense, 
what he does with him at the five and LeBron at the four is that finally forces DeAndre Ayton out of the paint because they're not going to put DeAndre Ayton on LeBron. They're not going to put DeAndre Ayton on a guard. And what they've been doing is when LeBron is at the three, they've been playing, you know, DeAndre Ayton on, a, you know, one of the other Lakers players who's not Marcus Saul, or they've been putting a wing on Marcus Saul, so that mm-hmm. because he can't, you know, overpower wings. But you know, when he's at the five, you have to put Ayton on him and stretching Ayton out to the perimeter, giving LeBron more driving rooms, more aggressive LeBron. You know, if the Lakers will need a LeBron masterclass to win game five, but these are the moments where LeBron answers the call. You know, he had that corny-ass quote about how his shoulders are this broad for a reason. (laughs) If there's a game where LeBron is going to step up and take over, it's game five, right? And I I believe he's going to take over, you know, I've been watching LeBron for a long time. He, it's been like a decade since he's disappointed. So I really, you know, he looked healthier in game four than I've ever seen him. He had that, you know, spin dunk, which I think he even was surprised that he was able to do. Um, he had that lob where his head was almost at the rim. And oh, he's, he's looking good. So I'm, you know, I personally am expecting LeBron to drop like 45. Like, that's what I'm expecting. So, that's... On that note, so LeBron's like 21 points per game this series. It's not, not a, I mean, he's put up a great stat line, like 21, 9, and 8. But this is the lowest points per game he's had in a playoff series since 2011. Mm-hmm. Which I think is kind of indicative of what we were talking about last episode, where you said that Anthony Davis needs to be the best player on the court for the Lakers to win, but with no Anthony Davis, LeBron's got to dust off his old man shoes and really put up points, because Mm -hmm. he can't, I mean, there's a huge scoring vacuum now that he has to take up, and I feel like he was kind of comfortable letting AD, like, score 30 in those early games in the series, and he was doing just fine by facilitating alone, but you're right, he needs to put up, like, 30 to 40 for them to have a chance, I think. Yeah, and we saw that in the fourth quarter. You know, he was super passive in the first half of this game even with you know ad being bad and clearly limited by the knee injury which i think is he'll be the the groin injury is obviously the bigger concern and the knee injury should be fine by the time he gets back from the groin injury but that was a concern you know coming into that game and ad clearly was not himself even in this game right in the lakers they had they were down for halftime but a lot of that was just from terrible mistakes and you know they were just not playing good in that first half right but we're talking about the future, so I don't need to talk about that. But, yeah, um, you hit it on the head. LeBron, again, he needs to be aggressive. But, you know, in that fourth quarter, he was aggressive. That's what we're going to see the whole game in game four. And and they're going to need that level of defensive intensity that they've showed throughout the year, too. Which is, but, you know, this team has had the mentality of next man up the whole year. They've played without AD so much this year that you know that gives me a little bit of comfort. You know, I've seen how good this team is without Anthony Davis, with just LeBron and then the rest of the guys on this team. This is a four seed without Anthony Davis. You know, if, if LeBron yeah. is healthy. You know, they are not outmatched in the series even without him. They're just a dominant team that would clearly win this series, you know, with him playing well, which they did. Right? So, mm-hmm. I do think that 
If they lose game five, I'll definitely get worried. But at this point, I'm still confident in the Lakers' ability to win this series. Time will tell. I'm very excited to see where this series goes. I think that if Anthony Davis was healthy, this kind of was trending in a six-game series direction with the Lakers coming out on top. But, you know, the the perspective has entirely shifted now that he's not going to be playing. And game five will definitely be a marquee matchup between LeBron and Chris Paul for for old time's sake. But we also have the Blazers and the Nuggets going back and forth in a series that, at this point, I can't really call. I was pretty confident going in that the Nuggets were going to be able to outplay the Blazers straight up. But it seems like with every game, there's a new storyline. I mean, in game one, it was like Jokic's inability to get anyone else involved. We kind of saw the same thing happen in game four, another one-assist stat line. Did you see a lot of the similar tactics that the Blazers employed in the first game in terms of just limiting the way he can create? Yes and no. Um, While, yeah, he didn't have as many assists and they're still trying to play him straight up, the bigger factor in game four was that the Nuggets could not make a jump shot to save their lives. I I think mm-hmm. they were, you know, 8 for 20-something on jumpers, you know, 2 and 3-pointers the whole game, which kind of, you know, ruined them. And it was the opposite from Game 3 when it was the Blazers who couldn't really shoot. So I'm with mm-hmm. you in this series being incredibly hard to call. But I yeah. think with, you know, that last victory for the Blazers in Game 4 was really big them winning a game where I'm pretty sure TJ Leaf had more field goal field goals made than Damian Lillard. Um, that's just a huge win yeah. for a team who has been relying on Dame so heavily. And I think, you know, I do think they'll probably end up on top of the series just because, you know, the Nuggets a lack of guard creation, you know, outside of the Austin Rivers game. Um mm-hmm. it is gonna be huge. And, you know, it'll matter more over the process of the series. And I still think, you know, the Blazers are going to pull it out. But I do think this is probably a seven-game series. And it's going to yeah. be crazy. Just because, again, without the the guards and the way the Blazers have been able to defend Michael Porter Jr., it's kind of just Jokic versus the Blazers. Mm-hmm. Jokic with occasional support from MPJ. Aaron Gordon's really been a ghost this series. Yeah. I mean, he didn't do anything in Game 4, but all series, he's been really quiet. I kind of expected him to make a little bit more noise without Jamal Murray from a scoring perspective. Mm -hmm. I agree. He's been quiet. Um, Norman Powell was great in Game 4, and the Blazers shot the ball pretty well. But, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I kind of think this is going 7-2. I'm just curious to see where the winner of this game or how they end up faring against a potential Suns matchup. Let's say in a reality where, <laughs> I, I, I know you do, probably don't want to talk about this, but if the Suns were to pull off the upset, so to put it, the Suns, the winner, the Lakers, I should say this, the winner of the Lakers-Suns series will be in the Western Conference Finals 100%. Yeah, right, like, that's kind of what I'm expecting because I feel like these two teams are both so... I don't know. I mean, the, the Blazers are tough for me because I've always felt like they have enough talent to contend at the highest level. And they're kind of showcasing that from the guard perspective. 
I just wonder, like, can the Blazers match up with the Suns well enough to win that series? We know that they can't beat the Lakers if they're even close to health, based on size alone. Like, there's no one on the Blazers that could guard LeBron James. I mean, it was the same story last year, right? Like, no Trevor Ariza. You knew they were done. They had nobody they could throw at him. It's kind of the same this year. Their best defensive option is probably Robert Covington, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, like, manageable, but... I mean, again, if Anthony Davis is healthy at that point, which we expect him to be, there's no chance. But with the Suns, I feel like the Blazers could honestly be an interesting matchup for them. Obviously, the Suns are a much better defensive team, but, I mean, the Blazers could keep the pace of that game offensively and force the Suns to keep up with them. What do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I do agree. I think the Blazers, I, again, I with your point about the Suns' defense, the Suns' defense has been so solid. You know this series, the scheme has been, you know, a great. And I think there is a scheme to help take away Damian Lillard. And when you have you know high IQ defenders, uh, like the Suns have with Chris Paul, and I think a lot of the guys the Suns haven't been playing who are great on defense will help to, you know, corral Dame into you know DeAndre Ayton and uh, make him, you know, take as difficult shots as you can make Dame take, but I, I do think, you know, Devin Booker is just going to be a huge issue for the Blazers. Just the problem that I'll always have with the Blazers is relying on two small guards who aren't good on defense. You know, it just... Three small guards now. Well, at least, at least Norm Powell is good on defense. So, yeah, no, that's, that's why... I mean, though. That changes things. Yeah, but, but again... You still have two guys on the court who Devin Booker can get into the post, bully, take easy mid-range jumpers over, use his footwork, get to the rim. He's just too strong and big for these guys. And Chris Paul is just going to eat Yusuf Nurkic alive in the pick and roll. You know, and you look cancer. At, yeah, I'm. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, Cancer's going to get played off the floor in that series. Yeah, man. Like, I, I just. Again, Chris Paul is going to be fully healthy for that series. I think he's pretty much fully healthy right now, you know. Mm -hmm. So I do not really like the Blazers' chances of advancing past this round. Um, so yeah, I, I again, as I said, the winner to me of the, you know, Lakers Suns is going to the Western Conference Finals. And, and you know, speak on the matchup with the Nuggets. You know, DeAndre, the one guy who has just consistently done a great job on Jokic is DeAndre Ayton. You know, mm -hmm. I think this, this season, Jokic is shooting like 34% against him. You know, just an unreal number. And he has just, he has both the strength where Jokic cannot plow through him and is just such a better athlete than Jokic that, you know, he kind of, you know, makes it super difficult on him. And, He's such a great athlete on the other end that he can force mm -hmm. Jokic into fouls. He can give, work him on the boards. You know, look what he's done against the series against the Lakers. Now, I, different yeah. schemes of guarding the pick and roll will lead to different, you know, outcomes. So I don't expect him to score, get as many open dunks against the Nuggets as uh, he did against the Lakers. But he's still going to be a huge force. And, you know, he showed how good he is in this playoff run so far. So... I, again, I do think, you know, this 
yeah, again, Lakers, Suns, winner, that's going to the Western Finals. That's all I have to say. Yeah, I mean, it could very well be the case. On the other hand, we talked about the Clippers and Mavs briefly earlier, but that is the 4-5 matchup. And for a second there, we kind of thought the Mavs were going to run away with it. They opened up a 2-0 lead. Luka looked just absolutely unbothered by anything the Clippers were throwing at him. And then you go to bed, and 48 hours later, you wake up, and it's time. It's 2-2. Two two. Mm-hmm. After two pretty crazy performances by Kawhi and Paul George, who's been... Amazing. I mean, really, just outstandingly solid. Like, that's all I can say. Insanely efficient. Kawhi shooting 62% in the series. Paul George shooting 50%. They're combining for about 50 points per game. They're just giving you exactly what they need, what the, the Clippers need from them. And... Um, Honestly, I think the Clippers kind of have taken all the momentum out of Dallas. That crazy stat line that I keep thinking about is Luka shooting 48% from the field, 40% from the three-point line, and 40% from the free-throw line? <laughs> How do you shoot the same? No sense, Like, bro. I mean, because that's the thing. He's been incredibly efficient all series. And did he can't free-throws? Like, is he rattled? I mean, like, he has to be, right? Because, like... I don't know. That, that made no sense to me. I just can't understand it. It'd be one thing if he was cold all over the place, but to shoot well in-game and then at the free-throw line just, like, completely choke, I don't know. But it could be indicative of a larger Dallas collapse, and I don't think that the series is over. But these last two games haven't really been close. The Clippers have kind of asserted themselves in the series, and... I mean, I think people were a little bit surprised to see them go down 2-0. So now that the series tied, it feels a little bit more natural. But the Clippers really turned it up a notch on defense after just letting Luka run wild for two games. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think the uh, shout-out Ty Lue. You know, his adjustments have been huge. Starting Batum uh, was a great adjustment. And they have been more hesitant to switch Kawhi off of Luka, which I think everyone has been calling for the whole series. There were probably more possessions where, you know, they ran drop coverage, uh, which, you know, which having Boban on the court requires them to do. Um, But, which is kind of, I mean, an interesting adjustment from Carlisle, but just not one that matches what, you know, the the Clippers, you know, did, and I, I agree, you know, the Clippers have totally stolen the momentum of the series, you know, them not giving up after they were down 30-11, that was the huge swinging point of the series, and, you know, that was kind of, I definitely, it's definitely not over, you know, series momentum can be switched, you know, so easily, and, the uh, Mavericks win in Game Five would do so much for, you know, their momentum and again putting them back on top. But the adjustments the Clippers have made, you know, them just getting to the rim with reckless abandon because you know PG had a quote. He said they the Mavs have no real rim protector. Just straight disrespect to Chris Porzingis, who, again, he's been terrible on been defense. Involved. He's been terrible on defense this series. And, yeah. you know, the Clippers are just cooking him. Kawhi sees food. 
He sees a, a buffet. He sees a, a gourmet buffet. I, I mean, he's just eating Maxi Kleba alive. And it's just... Yeah. He's getting to his spots. He's getting to the rim. He's going wherever he wants on the court. He's taking... You know, just He's drilling everything. Again, PG's been in his bag. Again, getting to the rim. Just... Kristaps just cannot stop him from getting to the rim, which is, you know, dep- so depressing given where he was just before the big injuries. Um, but yeah, yeah I, again, I don't want to say it's over for Dallas because Luke is so good, but with his injury, you know, obviously holding him back, especially mobility wise, you know, mm-hmm. go back and just look at how many mid range jump shots he took in game four compared to the rest of the series. Which, I mean, he was making them because he's Luka and he does that. But, you know, the the neck injury or the, the... I think it's a nerve injury. I think they're lying about being a neck strain. It's probably a nerve injury. That's what makes sense to me. Um, it really hampers his mobility and just his ability to get to the rim, which is what makes him so dominant. And especially if you are able to not play Zubats and Luka can't get to the rim, the series is over. Right, the mm-hmm. the only way the Mavs can win this series if the Clippers are gonna, you know, be able to are gonna start uh, Nick Batum is by Luca getting downhill and getting the drive and kick game back and just being a dominant force at the hoop and getting to the line and making his fucking free throws. He can't shoot forty percent from the line and and win this series. He just can't. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Also, with regards to the injury, they officially classified it as a cervical strain, which is just a fancy word for neck pain. But um, I think looking at the play that people are speculating it happened on, Marcus Morris, like, elbows him around the neck. I don't know if you've seen this play that people are kind of connecting to. I have to, not. Because it's not, it's not totally obvious, but it just reminds me of last year's playoff series. Lucas playing on a hobbled angle, and Marcus Morris came over and stepped on it sideways. If this oh, is yeah, thing happening, terrible. Yeah, right? And, I mean, I'm, I'm watching this video right now, actually, and Luca goes up for a layup, and then Marcus Morris just, like, follows him down with a right elbow right to the neck. Gross, but, again, Luca's, Luca's a trooper for playing through it. It's, uh, it's a shame he's clearly, like, just not himself because he was just so good in games one and two and three i think though yeah i mean this is the type of game that or the type of injury rather that you could probably rebound from mid-series you know like it is soft tissue and it's in a relatively benign area from like a basketball player's perspective like obviously no one wants to deal with neck pain but at the same time it's not like his shooting hand or a leg that he has to pivot off what i i will say is I think the announcer said something that was really big regarding the injury. So, it, I'm sure you watch Luca a lot. You know the overhead pass, the overhead skip pass that he is mm-hmm. unbelievable at. Um, the announcer, I believe it was Jim Jackson, uh, so he threw that pass and he immediately, Luca immediately looked to the sidelines and, you know, was pointing to his neck. And Jim Jackson goes, wow. if he, uh, again, that specific pass with his injury is really hurting him. If he can't make that pass, again, one of his, you know, if not his signature pass, his most effective pass, 
that what that tells me is that the Clippers will have the opportunity to double him uh, in the next mm-hmm. coming coming games. Although they might not need to if he can't get to the rim against Sigma yeah. coverage, right? But so that tells me that the neck injury is you know definitely hurting him. Um, but yeah, uh, again, if I do agree with you in this, this might be an injury that does feel a lot better in the coming days. I, I don't think it was going to be an injury that lasts, you know, multiple weeks. He could very well could be, you know, fully healthy by, say, game six. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll see how it impacts him for the rest of the series, but it's clearly impacting him quite a bit in game four. Yeah, definitely. So with that, we've gone through all of our playoff matchups, updating again. At this point in the playoffs, have you changed your mind about your finals prediction? Um, is there anything that's really standing out to you in terms of what we've seen? I know there's been some surprises, but how has your, your total outlook changed from the, the beginning of the first round? I think the biggest shift in my thought process so far has been about the Milwaukee Bucks. To me, they are the story of the first round. This is a team where I think I was always higher than on on them than most people this season, but you know they have lived up to my expectations and more. To where you know if this team you know if not if every team everybody if the Lakers are not one hundred percent healthy, this might be you know my championship favorite. I really think this team is that good, and they match up that well with so many different styles of teams. That is yeah my main takeaway. Yeah, honestly, I'm with you. I think that a lot of people didn't see them coming because of where they fell in the regular season. But, I mean, last year they ran away with the one seed in the East and got bounced by the Heat in the second round. This year they changed the recipe, fall in the standings a little bit, but ended up playing a much better basketball, and the results speak for themselves. So I'm with you. I also think that, I mean, I'm just really concerned about the Lakers this series. I think my biggest change in outlook is the fact that I'm actually contemplating whether or not LeBron escapes the first round. Sam, he may not. Yeah, I mean, maybe not. I know that you probably don't want to think like that, but... It's true. Deep down at the bottom of my heart, I really believe that LeBron will not lose in the first round. I just don't think it's going to happen. But, you know, this might be the year. (laughs) Kind of feels like we're talking about like the the Tom Brady cliff with Max Kellerman, but yeah, ex- and that, know, that, that's be... why I never want to doubt Tom. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I or know, Tom I, and I and LeBron, LeBron same LeBron same either. people basically. Let's be real. Yeah, this really could be the perfect storm of terrible timing, injuries, and matchups that finally get the best of him. But we'll see because I'm sure LeBron knows this too, and there's a lot on the line for him in game five with no Anthony Davis. So if we don't see a LeBron masterclass, I would be shocked. Just put it that way. Um, that about does it for us, I think. Any final thoughts? Um, I, Jay Crowdy is a dirty basketball player. Uh, I don't know. If, <laughs> I, I, yeah. I saw this clip um, earlier, I think yesterday, where so he is contesting a Kyle Kuzma shot, right? So... I mean, the listeners are not going to see this, but so, right, so Kuzma shoots it, and Jay Crowder's hand is right here, and then after the shot, Jay Crowder slaps him right in the face, 
The ref is staring yeah. right at it. Does not call anything. Like, what the fuck yeah. is that? I, I don't like Jake Crowder. It's very obvious that he's frustrated with the matchup he's getting. And it's just kind of like taking it out after the plays occur. Um, kind of been seeing him like be shippy all series. But, yeah, not it's a huge a Jake Crowder fan. I also hated the fact that he hit that, like, dagger three oh. at the end of the game. Like, the game was already over, though, to be fair. Oh, the game was over, but like still, as soon as as soon as Mark Gasol uh, got his pass stolen by CP3, the game was over. Yeah, and as soon as LeBron poked that pass away, or poked the ball away, just for oh yeah, to, right to uh, fucking whoever he poked it to. That was uh, I was I was so mad when that happened. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh my god! Crowder. Yeah, it was to Jay Crowder. Crowder. And then Crowder swung into Bridges. Yeah. Yeah. But right, yeah, my, all right. my I think that is it. To end the day and solidify the trade Kemba case. So Kemba is doubtful in game five with a bone bruise in his left knee because why not? Rob Williams is also doubtful, which is a shame because I really love watching him play. But Kemba's postseason, after a terrible regular season where he had his lowest points per game in six years and shot 40% from the field. He's going to end this postseason with splits of 31 and 17 from the field in three and 12 points per game. And like I said, I really do think this is the icing on the cake for the Kemba story. And I wish him the best, but I really hope that the rest of his career does not unfold in Boston. That's all I have to say. And hopefully we can make some moves because... I really don't want to lose to the Nets again next year. This team pisses me off, man. Also, I think we probably should talk very quickly about the whole incident with Kyrie. Um, like, obviously, he got a water bottle thrown at him. And he also, like, stomped on the Lucky the Leprechaun logo. I just think it's, like, if you're actually mad about him stomping on the logo, you got, like, reevaluate your priorities in life. Yeah, I so, absolutely I agree. That was, like... Right now, picturing a 45-year-old chubby Irishman going back into his apartment in Southie and screaming at his wife, he stepped on Lucky! He stepped on Lucky! And I just think there's so many Celtics fans right now that are probably, like, besides themselves that he's, like, disrespecting this great logo. I mean, let's face it. There's racist fans in every city, and Boston is no exception. The stuff that Danny Ainge said the other day about how in his 26 years in Boston... He's never heard of anything like racist transpiring with between like players and fans. Ridiculous. That's like so tone deaf. I mean, Marcus Smart literally wrote an article about um, like a Celtics fan, a white woman, who called him the N-word after a Celtics game as he was trying to leave the garden in his own car. Like, there's so many instances of racism and just like utter disrespect between fans and players for every um, every team, but again, the Celtics are no exception, and to kind of like just deny it and brush it aside is really stupid, because I think it's a terrible look for not only the sport, but like potential free agents, you know, if you're looking at Boston yeah, absolutely. as your next home, and you're hearing about all these like terrible incidences with fans, I don't know, I mean, that makes a difference for guys. throw stuff at players. One, one, one thing I will say is, that water bottle was shockingly close to Kyrie's face, and that throw was a pretty decent distance. No, that guy sucks, but oh, yeah. I, I, he has a good arm. That's all I'll say. He should have never <laughs> thrown that, but that's no, was shockingly no, no. close. <laughs> he might, but 
had a lot of people debating whether or not the water bottle was full because that would be a pretty important Ooh, uh, that's piece true. of evidence. I think it had to be full. It was moving way too fast. Yeah, empty water it bottle. had to. Yeah, I mean that you know, would hurt like a motherfucker. Oh yeah, empty water bottles like they kind of like flutter through the air. Mm-hmm. This thing was booming. <laughs> I mean, the, the dude's a prick. Like I don't like Kyrie obviously as a Celtics fan, but there's a fine line between like you know get your booze out, but. As soon as anything evolves to this, even if it's like popcorn, so disrespectful, dude. Like, it makes me so mad. And again, it's a terrible look for the fan base. So on behalf of all Celtics fans, screw you, URI student who thought he was hot shit and decided to throw his water bottle. Disrespecting our state, bro. Disrespecting our state, the great, great state of Rhodey. It's really a shame, but with that said, we are all set here. Um, we'll be back in a few days, hopefully with the, uh, a recap for the end of the first round. Thank you guys so much for tuning in.